Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. We are going to read quite a bit of scripture tonight, but I think you'll like it. It's exciting stuff. But yes, it's not the boring part of the Bible we're going to be reading, okay? It's the good part. There's actually just a couple of really tight points I want to make, but I'm reading this other stuff to give you the full context of what these points are, all right? And actually, there's one main point, but I'm going to make it from the Old Testament uh, and the New. And we'll start back in 2 Kings, actually uh, in chapter 6. And this is when, uh, this is still, on, you know, I don't know, we're, we're several kings into the divided kingdom. You remember, I'm not going to give the whole background there, but we have the northern kingdom of Israel and its capital in Samaria. Jehoram is king at this time, and Israel is at war with Syria. This is during the ministry of the prophet Elisha. You remember him, right? And he's already performed some significant miracles, including the healing of Naaman the Syrian, uh, and he has seen uh, God open the eyes of his servant. Do you remember? The, he's standing out there with his servant, a young man, who sees the enemy army out there. He says, oh, what do we do? What do we do? And, and Elisha prays that his eyes are open, and then he can see the army of God, flaming chariots and horses, and uh, realizes that God's army is way bigger. And at that point, the enemy army comes in, and uh, uh, at the word of Elisha, God strikes them blind, the entire army. And he leads them practically by hand right into Samaria, into the city gates, and presents them as a gift to King Jehoram. And we'll pick up the story in uh, verse 21. Now, when the this is Second uh, Kings chapter six, verse 21. Now, when the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, "My father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them?" But he answered, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you've taken captive with your sword and your bow? Set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Then he prepared a great feast for them. And after they ate and drank, he sent them away and they went to their master. So the bands of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. Now you have to keep in mind, Israel are kind of the bad guys. They are a nation or a sub-nation in rebellion against God not going to go through the whole story of when that kingdom split. There was a moment where God was in it and promised to bless them if they would keep their hearts pure toward him, but they didn't. One of the first things Jeroboam, the first king of the northern kingdom, did was set up a place of worship, uh, twin places of worship, one in Bethel, one in Dan, so that the inhabitants of the northern kingdom would not go to Jerusalem to worship, which is where they were supposed to worship. He thought if they continue to go to Jerusalem with their offerings, then their hearts are going to be turned and they're going to want to reunite, which really was what God wanted. And he said, well, to keep them from doing that, we'll just set up these other places of worship. And these other kings persisted in that. And it was their sin, just as all through the book of Judges, and it would continue through the book of Kings, it was their sin that got these Syrian bands of raiders kind of opened up these attacks in the first place. God gives them an out here. Uh, There's a great opportunity to make peace with Syria and should have been a wake-up call to Jehoram and the nation of Israel. But they persisted in their sin. So the very next thing we see happen in verse 24 is... And we'll read, uh, and we'll just read this verse first. And it happened after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. 
Okay, so now we're right back at war. Now let's read on uh, verse 25. And there was a great famine in Samaria, and indeed they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth of a cab of dove droppings for five shekels of silver. Now this is a lot of money. You could have got the whole donkey for half that in good times, uh, and they didn't eat donkey normally. Uh, and the head would be the last thing you would eat. And they're paying 80 shekels for the donkey head. And the dove droppings, this was somewhere between a pint and a quart. And uh, I did some, I was like, are they really eating bird poop? Uh, I had to look this up. And, and the overwhelming consensus seems to be that there was this really, it was kind of a, a cheap mash of uh, low-grade vegetables. Kind of just this... Uh, I don't know, not a soup, but a porridge made of throwaway vegetables that they called, they still call, it's still, uh, certain countries still call it uh, dove dung. It's just kind of a nickname for it, okay? So anyway, it's the cheapest possible food, and they're selling it for, uh, you know, it's expensive just for a little bit of this stuff. That's how bad the famine was, that's all. And maybe they were eating bird poop. There were, there were some who were arguing they could actually go through there and pick out the seeds and whatever. It was bad, that's what I'm telling you. People were hungry. So then, verse 26, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, help my Lord, O king. And he said, if the Lord does not help you, where can I find help for you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? Then the king said to her, what is troubling you? And she answered, this woman said to me, give, give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled, and, boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. This is how bad things have gotten. King, would you make her give her son to to me so we can boil him and eat him? And here's the king's reaction. Now it happened when the king heard the words of the woman that he tore his clothes. And as he passed by on the wall, the people looked. And there, underneath, he had sackcloth on his body. And he said, then he said, God, do so to me, and more also, if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. Now, I read all that other stuff before, because if you don't see the context, maybe, huh, I don't have to do this anymore. You're, maybe you're like me, and you think, why is he blaming Elisha for this? Why is he blaming Elisha for the famine? We don't see where Elisha prayed for this famine or or that uh, God ordained it through Elisha or anything. But this is who he's so frustrated in this moment. He's the king. He's the one who's supposed to be offering protection and provision uh, and uh, for for the people. And the people are coming to him, and this is how bad it's gotten. They're complaining. The complaint they're bringing to the king is, make her let us eat her son. And so he curses Elisha. Why? Because I believe at that moment he's looking back, few weeks, months, years, whatever it was, and said, if he just let me kill them when he brought them blind into the city, we wouldn't be dealing with this today. Rather than saying, if we had used that opportunity, if only we had used that opportunity to get right with God, he would have protected us from this famine in the first place. He's looking for somebody else to blame. So he sends a messenger. We can just read on. Uh, verse 32 But Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. And the king sent a man ahead of him. But before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, Do you see how this son of a murderer has sent someone to take away my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? 
And while he was still talking with them, there was the messenger coming down to him. And then the king said, Surely this calamity is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Then Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel and the, at the gate of Samaria. So an officer on whose hand the king leaned answered the man of God and said, Look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? And he said, In fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. There's some interesting things that happened here where he said, he tells him, you know, as you, you know, the, this is one of the things that was said about Elisha earlier is, is uh, that whenever they would plan something, you know, the king of Syria would be like, who's, who's the spy? Who's, who's telling the king of Israel our plans? They said, nobody's telling him, it's Elisha. Uh, God shows this to him, and then whatever God shows him in his secret chamber, he tells the king. And, you know, he's a prophet, he's a seer, and he knows before the messenger gets there that this messenger is coming as his executioner. The people he's sitting with, the elders, are the elders of the city. They don't have the authority to resist the king's messenger. So what Elisha tells him is, when he gets here, don't let him in. The king's right behind him. Just hold him off long enough until the king gets here. Uh, Most scholars, there's, there's a broad consensus here that they simply knew that the king realized he had issued a pretty rash order. I'm going to send you off to kill Elisha. And then as soon as he dispatches the messenger, he's like might not be the best idea. This is the guy who at one point has delivered our city. So he goes right behind the messenger, and he's, but his complaint is, this is such a supernaturally bad famine that it must be from God, so why am I even seeking God for deliverance? And Elisha gives him the word of deliverance, and it's coming tomorrow. Tomorrow, this time, you're, you're paying 80 shekels for a donkey's head today. You're going to get wheat for pennies tomorrow. And then this officer you know, if you, something's missing in the text. I'm not saying that words are left out, but I think we're missing some of the tone here because all he all looks like, wow, if the windows of heaven opened, could this thing be? I think there was something a little more sinister about this. I think this officer uh, on whose hand or on whose arm the king leaned, this was a close associate of the king. I think he was very jealous of Elisha and the esteem that the people and the king held him in. And so I think there was something really nasty in this challenge. He was trying to ridicule Elisha, in addition, of course, to speaking doubt rather than agreeing with the word of God. Because God doesn't kill capriciously, and yet Elisha essentially pronounces a death sentence on the guy. You're going to see this happen, but you're not going to be around to enjoy it. And this is pretty much how it works out. Read a little bit more. We're still in chapter 7 and verse 3. Now, there were four leprous men at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, We will enter the city. The famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. Now, therefore, come, let us surrender to the army of the Syrians. If they keep us alive, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall only die. And they rose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians, and when they had come to the outskirts of the Syrian camp, to their surprise, no one was there. For the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses, the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. Therefore they arose and fled at twilight and left the camp intact. 
their tents, their horses, their donkeys, and they fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the outskirts of the camp, they went into one tent and ate and drank and carried from it silver and gold and clothing and went back, uh, sorry, and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried some from there also and went and hid it. Then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news, and we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, some punishment will come upon us. Now, therefore, come, let us go, to go and tell the king's household. So they went and called the gatekeepers of the city and told them, saying, We went to the Syrian camp, and surprisingly no one was there, not a human sound, only horses and donkeys tied and the tents intact. And the gatekeepers called out, and they told it to the king's household inside. Now the king decides to send messengers to check this out. Uh, Sends men, anyway, to investigate that because he fears there's a trap. If they left everything there, they're going to wait until all of Israel goes out to check out the campsite, and then they're going to sneak into the city and take it. But they get there, and it's just like these lepers had said. Everything was there. They plundered the camp, and food was cheap. And the officer who had challenged Elisha, as soon as news got out, All the food you want is right down the road in the Syrian camp. People went storming out through the gates and trampled this guy to death. They go get the food. So so there's the story. I want to focus for a minute on these lepers, these leprous men. And the whole city, remember, was in trouble. No doubt about that. But these were the low men on the social totem pole, as it were. Certainly a degree of fatalism there, but their logic was absolutely sound. They had three options, and two of them resulted in certain death. And the third one only resulted in probable death. We can sit here and starve to death, or we can go in the city and starve to death, or we can go surrender to the Syrians and probably get killed, but they might let us live. What do we have to lose? So they go, and, know, and they find this life-saving food. Everything was there to, to provision an entire army. And they eat, and they start to plunder it. And no sooner had they started to satisfy themselves and collect stuff than they realized that not only would it be a good idea to share the provision and share the news, but that it would absolutely be a sin not to. Because there was no shortage. It wasn't like they had to worry about, well, if we tell somebody else, we might run out. There was apparently so much there that they just had to tell everybody else. Tell the city. Life is in the Syrian camp. Now turn to John chapter 7. You remember a couple weeks ago, and uh, before that sometime, we were talking about Jesus' ministry. He was in Cana, and he healed a nobleman's son. I'm not sure we talked about that specifically. Then in Jerusalem... He heals this cripple at the pool of Bethesda. And uh, he did it on the Sabbath. And the Jews were really up in arms about that. That really ticked them off. And so they're kind of after him about it. And they confront him. And he delivers in response to their charges. He delivers a discourse on his authority, on his identity. And it does absolutely nothing to calm down the Jewish authorities because they realize as he's talking that he's claiming that his authority is he's the son of God. And this really offends him. So they came at him mad because he did work on the Sabbath by healing this guy. And they left even madder because now he's claiming to be God. Then he goes over the Sea of Galilee 
And the people followed him because of the healings that they had seen him do in his ministry. And he feeds them, feeds the whole crowd, 5,000 of them, by multiplying the loaves and fishes. Then his disciples take off in the boat to cross over to Capernaum. He walks on the water to catch up to them. The boat is immediately there in Capernaum, and he starts to minister. And the people who he had fed the day before discover that he's gone. They discover where he's gone, and they follow him. Why did they follow him? For bread. Do it again. This is a pretty good deal. We'll follow you around, and just whatever little food is there, you're going to feed us all with it. And he confronts them. Uh, He confronts their shallowness, confronts their greed or laziness, whatever it is, and he refuses to repeat the miracle. He refuses to repeat the miracle, and then he takes this opportunity to teach them the truth about what real life is, what eternal life is, and he says he's the only one that can offer it, but they have to receive him. He has to nourish them, not by creating more bread out of bread or more fish out of fish, but by offering his own body and his own blood. Tells them, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood... And this causes many people to turn away from him. Then in chapter 7, Jesus' brothers go up to the Feast of Tabernacles. And he tells them, you go up without me, I'm not going yet. Depending on which translation you read, it kind of looks like he was deceptive. In some translations it says, I'm not going to this feast. But really the, the logical reading is, I'm not yet going to this feast and tells him to go, and then he kind of sneaks into Jerusalem while the feast is going on. This is a feast that lasts a week. The Feast of Tabernacles, I'm not an expert on the Old Testament feast, but the Feast of Tabernacles was celebrated once a year, and it was almost like a, a national campout. They were to live in these booths, these, these booths or tents that they made, to remind them of the time that they dwelt in tabernacles when they were in the wilderness. When they left Egypt, they came out, and during the wandering years, for 40 years, they dwelt in these portable dwellings, these tents. And the Feast of Tabernacles was a celebration of harvest, God's provision, and a celebration of his provision and protection during their wandering years. But it was. It was a holiday. It wasn't a time for fasting. It was more of a feast, okay? And this is a part that's a little bit confusing. Uh, And again, uh, depending on whose description you read of this particular holiday, and I don't have a Jewish background. I've never celebrated it. But there was a daily ritual where they brought water up from the pool of Siloam and brought it up and poured it into these bowls and did a little, uh, again, a little ritual with it. And then at the end, at the, at the, on the high feast day, the, at the peak of this feast, they would pour this stuff, this water, water and wine, I think, on the altar. And what this specifically commemorated was how God had brought water out of the rock to provide them water when they were thirsty in the wilderness. Okay? So Jesus goes up here during this feast and starts... Uh, and it tells us in this, in this chapter that the people are already talking about him. They don't even know he's there yet, but he's the subject that's on everybody's lips. Where is he? Where is he? Is he hiding out? Are the authorities going to arrest him? But they're being very quiet because they don't want the Jewish authorities to know they're talking about Jesus. They know the authorities are after him. Now let's look at this. We'll pick it up in verse 14. John seven fourteen. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and taught And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, 
he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel. Moses, therefore, gave you circumcision. Not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. You know what he's talking about here? The law says eight days, on the eighth day after a male was born, he was to be circumcised. So if that eighth day happened to fall on the Sabbath, he was circumcised on the Sabbath. He said, now I did a good work. I healed the man, and you're mad at me because I did it on the Sabbath. But Moses is the one who gave you the law, and you circumcise on the Sabbath, and you're trying to kill me. Never mind all the other stuff that Moses gave you that you don't do. You want to kill me for something I did on the Sabbath. And they're like, ah, who wants to kill you? And then he answers them with this stuff. If a man, uh, verse 24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Now, some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly, and they say nothing to him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is truly the Christ? The onlookers are amazed because they walk, they're walking on uh, eggshells around the Jew. And when it says the Jews, it means the Jewish authorities, the Pharisees, the, the lawyers, and so forth. And so they're watching this. They, they're watching this conflict. They're nervous about the Jews, but Jesus answers them boldly, gets right in their face, and the people are like, they're just standing there taking it. You hear how he talks to them? And they don't, he doesn't, maybe they realize he's the Christ after all. Otherwise, they'd have him locked up by now. Skip down to verse 27. However, this is right after they say that this could be the Christ. Verse 27, however, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. Now, this is the thing that they get hung up on. The priests will later say, I don't know if we're going to read it tonight. They'll say, we know this isn't the the Christ because nowhere in Scripture does it say a prophet comes out of Galilee. Because Nicodemus says, are we, are we going to string this guy up without a trial? Don't we get, have a chance to, can we investigate him? Can we talk to him? Can we interview him? And they say, well, what, you want to be one of his followers? Just check the word, man. Nowhere does a prophet rise out of Galilee. And here they say this. This is, uh, they've said something I think we may have looked at last week. If, when the Messiah comes, will he do greater works than these? Who could be doing the things that Jesus does if he's not the Messiah? The problem is, we know where Jesus is from. And when the Messiah comes, we won't know where he's from. Let me ask you this. I'll give you a dollar if you can tell me. Where is it in the Bible that says no one knows where the Messiah is from? Want to take a guess which book? It's not in there. What does the prophecy say? It says he'll be born in Bethlehem. It says he'll be born of a virgin. It says a lot of things about it. Why did they believe this? It was a tradition. It was a tradition that got snuck in there, and there were people who believed it. You know how the, uh, the, the tells us in the Old Testament, and you can maybe take a stab at which book this is in, how the uh, priest, when he went in on the Day of Atonement, we talked about this on the one day of the year, when he took the blood behind the veil, 
and poured it out on the mercy seat. You know they had a, how they had that rope tied around his ankle and they had bells around the bottom of his, of his garment so that they could hear him. We know the bells are there. It describes this, right? And they would tie this rope around his ankle so that if they heard, if they could no longer hear the bells, that meant the, priest did, the high priest did something wrong and he died in the presence of the Lord. Well, the problem was nobody could go behind the veil to get him, so they had to pull him out by that rope. Leviticus probably, right? Except it's nowhere in the Bible. A guy called me on that probably 20 years ago. I took it. I always believed that was in there. And I had read the Bible. But you know how you're reading the Bible. And you, oh, I, never, I, did, I don't remember seeing that before. I, figured, I guess I figured I had seen it before. Now, there's something very logical about it. And traditionally, it's true. But there's nothing in the Word about it. It's very, very important, folks, to know why we believe what we believe. Okay? We can get into an amazing amount of trouble. And a little detail like this kept so many people from receiving Christ as the Messiah. He, he does this. He, everything about him screams, I'm the Messiah. Can't be, though, because we know he's from Galilee. And we're not supposed to know that about the Messiah. Who says? Anyway. Now we skip down to verse 37. On that last day, the great day of the feast... Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. This is what I wanted to bring us to. The problem Jesus was having getting through to the people had to do with their being utterly consumed with themselves. He was more than willing to heal them and even feed them at times. But he did not come to be a source of food and comfort. What he wanted them to receive was himself. But in order for them to do that, as they needed to do that, they had to be able to see him as more than a source or a supply. He didn't promise that if they believed in him, that they would always have enough water in their reservoir for them and their families. He said rivers rivers of living water would flow out of them. This is the life-giving, life-changing Spirit of God he's talking about. When we meet Jesus for who he really is, when we receive the Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit, we realize that our healing and our supply, etc., is the last thing we have to worry about. It doesn't mean we can't speak to these things. It doesn't mean we don't pray about these things. It means that it's not, I came to God and I worship God because I have got to have this constant source of, uh, of supply. I've got to have this source of finances. I've got to have this source of healing. Therefore, that's who he is to me. There is a superabundance 
of everything pertaining to life and godliness. And our whole worldview is changed from how can I get more for me to who can I share this with? If these rivers of living water are going to flow out of us, where do they come out? They come out of our mouth. Jesus said, I love this, I've, I've, I love this little verse when he says in John fifteen three, you are now clean by the word I've spoken to you. He cleansed with his word. He healed with his word. Now he used different, he touched some people, he put mud on some people. Uh, but, most, but, but at the end of the day, what he really did was healed with his word. And that's the best, the highest uh, example of faith was when he was able just to speak it over a guy who wasn't even there, the centurion's servant. And so what, it's just like, I could see this coming. I could see that, that we're, we're all tracking here. When Pastor Mike was talking about that, we've got to speak these things out. Fountains. Rivers, And so when we encounter situations, not just situations that face us, but situations that face our brothers and our sisters, what ought to come out of, what should come out of our mouths should be the most encouraging, life-giving, faith-building stuff. Don't you worry. I'm in agreement with you, and we are in agreement with the word which has already covered your situation. What can I do? It's not... I've got, to have, I've got to have this for me. We have stumbled into the Syrian camp, and there is an abundance. There is way more than we'll ever need. The question is, how many people can we save with this today? How many people can I share this food with, this supply with, this healing, this deliverance with? And in fact, just like those lepers in the Syrian camp, it's not a question of we realize that not to share what we have, not to share who we know, is a sin. It's not just something we ought to do. Hey, you know what? It just dawns on me. God's been really good to me. I think it'd be really good if I shared. No, it's a sin if you don't. Knowing who you know, knowing what you know, what you've got, shame on us if we don't share it. James 4.17 says, to him who knows to do good and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. See, see, it's not just a matter of obedience, although it is certainly that. It's kind of like what we've been looking at, uh, what we looked at for five weeks in praise and worship. We are, there are commands, clear commands and instructions to praise and worship the Lord. But if we really encounter God for who he is, how can we not worship the Lord? And we've been commanded to preach the gospel. But if we really have encountered the risen Christ, the living Christ, if he really is living in us, and if we really love people... How can we not preach the gospel? How can we not? This living Christ that changes us from self-centered, need-based people into sources, to, to not reservoirs, but conduits, rivers. You know, we, are, we, are, we are just what the river of the life and spirit of God flows into, through, and out of. What transforms us from one to the other is the blood of Jesus Christ. We are all dying in the city. We are the Samaritans who are besieged by the enemy until deliverance shows up, and we're led into abundance, supply, deliverance. And it's such a huge supply, there's enough to share with everybody. And what delivers us is the blood of Jesus Christ. 
our sin puts us in that mess just as surely as Israel's sin put them in their mess. And every one of us has it. Jesus came to deliver us by taking that sin itself, taking it in his own body, carrying it to the cross, and dying our death. The debt's been paid. And he offers that to the entire world. Doesn't mean the whole world's saved. The people, in order to get that food, had to get out of the city and into the Syrian camp. What do we do? We have to go to the cross. We personally, individually, have to go to him and say, I need that. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me because I need a Savior. I need you to be my King, you to be my Lord, so that you can be my Savior. If you've not personally done that, not given your heart to Christ, not invited him to sit on the throne of your heart, I want you to do that tonight. You need to do that tonight, and I believe you want to do that tonight. Interesting, though, when he, Jesus was talking about those rivers of living water flowing out of us, it says he was referring to the Holy Spirit, which had not yet been given because he'd not yet been glorified. Guess what? He was given 2,000 years ago. Day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out on all flesh. And those of us who are born again can also be baptized in the Holy Spirit, the fullness of God. And that's where the power comes from. That's exactly what Jesus was talking about when he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you to be my witnesses. You'll receive power for the life that's in you to come out of you. That's what a witness is. These life-giving words will come out of you when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Have you received the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Have you received that power? I want to invite you to do that if you haven't. And finally, I want all of us to pray, to really examine ourselves. Because we, strangely enough, and I believe there's, it's not a matter of superiority, or you know, doctrinal superiority or anything. There are things that we believe, distinctives about this church that, say, that aren't shared by certain denominations. The gifts of the Spirit. All right? Broadly speaking. But we of all people who have experienced the, 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 the infilling of the Holy Spirit, that second blessing as, the, as some people still call it, We ought to be freer of this than anybody. But in fact, because we believe so firmly in the promises of God for our healing, for our supply, for our deliverance, for our restoration, sometimes that's what 90% of the words, if we are exercising faith at all, it's all about us. We can be faith people and yet still self-centered. I want us to take a minute to really reflect, have I really been seeking Jesus for Jesus? Is it him I've received, or am I just receiving his healing and his supply and his protection, his deliverance? Am I just receiving, am I, I hope it doesn't sound cliche, but it really is a a nice distinction. Are we seeking his face, or are we seeking his hand? He offers us both, you understand, but it's nice if we're seeking his face, we encounter the hand on the way. He who did not spare his own son will also with him freely give us all things but it's the son we seek will you take a moment and reflect and ask god to reveal jesus to you maybe in a way you have never seen him before it will change your life starting now i'm going to pray 
And then we're going to sing. When they start singing, if you desire to be saved, you desire to give your heart to Christ, you desire to be filled with the Holy Spirit, come up here and let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for rivers of living water. Thank you, Lord, that we are filled, not just filled, that you are coursing through us so that you can come out of us to be a source of encouragement, a source of healing, a source of deliverance, a source of salvation and life to the world, to to the desert that surrounds us. Help us to love people like you love people and see ourselves as well-equipped to minister to them. Just as you have saved us, uh, we desire to be used as you save others. I pray, Lord, now if there's anybody in here who does not know you as Father yet, who has not come into that newness of life, inherited that promise of eternal life that you paid such a dear price for them to receive, that you would convict them of their need and grant them a desire, the wisdom, the humility, the boldness, everything they need to come down tonight and receive that gift. In Jesus' name. I pray that if, there's a, if there are believers in here who have been walking, uh, but it's been a strain, and they realize they've never received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They've never experienced that power that you would cause them to hunger for the Holy Spirit himself to fill them, empower them to be the witness you've called us all to be. Thank you for these things. I trust you to do what only you can do now, Lord. In Jesus' name, all the believers said amen. God bless you as you come. Let's go ahead and sing. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.